Hey, thank you for giving all of that because they are doing a fantastic job there. Uh, they're in the middle of Marseille where, um, again, they're probably about uh, 10 or 20 years um, ahead of us in terms of being removed from a biblical worldview, you know, that shapes their culture. Um, there's all types of atheism, humanism, you know, uh, things of that nature. But when we were ministering, we were ministering, I was just telling uh, Chris and Aaron that we were ministering in uh, an area that was uh, <clears throat> associated with their annual music festival. And so their music festival is much like what you would see at Lollapalooza, if you've ever been to Lollapalooza um, down the street. And so it was crazy. I, I, I um, I told people that if, you know, uh, weed came in like packs of cigarettes, I probably smoked two packs, like, you know, just talking to people, you know, throughout the day, I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, so that meaning I didn't smoke it myself, but the people around me, okay, just to be, just to be clear. <laughs> okay. But, um, the thing is, is that, um, we were ministering and as people were hearing the gospel, people were thankful. I'm just here to tell you that people were thankful coming even from a culture where they did not um, necessarily exalt the things of Jesus or the gospel of Jesus. We spoke to people from not only France, but um, immigrants from Algeria, Turkey, you know, um, um, people through other parts of Europe, and they were thankful for hearing us. We spoke to Muslims, we spoke to atheists, we spoke to all types of people. And I mean, there was one guy I was talking to in the middle of the uh, concert, and uh, he was a Muslim man, and he was just thanking me for telling him about Jesus and the good news of Jesus. He didn't respond in the moment because it's one of the first times he's really considering it. But in the middle of the uh, concert, he was listening, thanking me. And then he was like, excuse me, hold on for a minute. And then started break dancing. You know? <laughs> then, you know, then he came back and was like, just kept talking. Yeah. You know, I just thank you for not judging me. You know, I was like, listen, brother, there's good news. So anyway, so as Cole said, people were coming to Jesus, even in the midst of that time. And it was fantastic and good. So again, thank you for your prayers. Amen. And glory to God for all of that. Okay. So we preach not only here in Chicago, but to the nation. So with that in mind, um, we are going to start a new series. And uh, I don't know if it was inspired by the festival, but it is called Worship in Songland. <laughs> okay? Worship in Songland. And some of you are familiar with the TV show, The Voice. How many of you have watched The Voice before? Okay? So, got a lot of artists coming out of The um, Voice. But uh, The Voice has actually had a current spinoff, which is actually called Songland, right? And Songland is trying to discover some of the songwriters, you know, not just the singers or the artists themselves, but also the songwriters. And one of the inspirations, of this is that we know that by the grace of God, we have uh, several songwriters in the church, okay? Several songwriters who are um, being compelled and led by the Spirit of God to actually proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of song. And this is a reminder to you that that's part of your call, okay? Is to rise up and declare the goodness of God in the midst of um, the culture in which we live. But we're going to be talking about worship in songland because regardless of whether or not you're a songwriter, we all have a song of praise to sing to God, right? And we all need to learn how to worship God, not just in our lives, but in also our expression to God. It's almost like in, a, in any type of relationship, you may have plenty of affection for the individual that you're in relationship with, but to actually have a successful relationship, you need to learn how to express it well. And how many people, how many married people said amen to that? Okay. It's not, it's not just good enough 
to have affection in your heart. You need to learn how to express it well to the one that you love. And so and what we're going to be talking about in worship and songland over the next several weeks is really how do we develop an attitude of biblical worship? How do we develop an attitude and a posture of biblical freedom before the Lord so that when we're worshiping him, we're worshiping the Lord as he desires in spirit and in truth in spirit and in truth, the manner in which he told us to worship him. And today, I think I would be remiss if we didn't um, talk about um, uh, starting off the uh, series by talking about uh, the story behind the song the story behind the song. If you're watching Songland and you watch The Voice, a lot of times they start off with the story of the artist before they um, are there uh, singing their songs. And in Songland, they're talking about the story behind the song that they're actually producing. And for us, we need to understand if we're to worship God in song, what's the story behind the song? What's the story behind the song in our hearts and our minds that evoke worship out of us? And so today we're going to talk about that in two parts. Number one, before the song, and then understanding Christ Jesus, our song. Christ Jesus, our song. We're going to talk about before the song and then Christ Jesus, our song. So starting off talking about before the song, understanding why we're actually worshiping um, the way that we do. We understand that we all have a story. It doesn't matter where you've started off, whether you grew up in the church or like myself, did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up in the church, so it was a very clear distinction between when I was not walking with God and now today, as I've been walking with God, what that looks like, saved and redeemed, washed clean, you know, put on a new path by Jesus Christ. But even in the church, a lot of times people forget the reason for the song that they have. And that's why King David, who was a psalmist, a songwriter by the Holy Spirit, he was often talking and praying to God, God, renew in me, renew in me the joy of my salvation, right? And renew a steadfast spirit within me. And there's all types of things within our culture that try to steal the song of the Lord from us and try to muffle the joy that we should actually have in worshiping God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength in spirit and in truth. So today we're going to look at two places. Number one, a place in Isaiah, who was an Old Testament prophet, who was actually having to address Israel at a time much like ours where there was all types of mixture, there was all types of um, things that did not please God that were a part of the culture, and the Israelites had to find their song in the midst of that culture and not allow the song of God to be muffled. And then we're going to go to one of the Psalms themselves and understand how Christ has become our song, okay? So if you have your Bible today, open with me to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to read verses 10 through 17. So we all have a song. We're talking about, first of all, before the song, we all have a song, but we don't have a song. We really don't have a song in our hearts until we realize who Jesus is and from what, from that rather, which he has actually rescued us. We don't have a song until we realize who Jesus is and that from which he's actually rescued us. How many people would agree with that? Okay, it's sort of like you don't understand why you're singing to him. You don't really have a motivation to sing to him until you realize what, who he is and what he's done for you. This is what Isaiah is talking about, okay? So he says, verse 17, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert the dry place, and its cities. 
lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, right? How many people believe that in the house of the Lord there should be plenty of joy? Okay, not just obligation, but there should be joy in the house of God. But sometimes we don't experience joy in the house of God because you don't understand who he is or what he's rescued you from. But when you understand who he is and what he's rescued you from, then there's a real joy that's evoked in your hearts, right? If you are a hungry man on the streets of Chicago and somebody actually had mercy on you and gave you something to eat after days or perhaps weeks of not having your needs met, how many people know there would be joy coming out of your heart when you actually got to eat? Okay, see, we're too privileged of a people, right? Because we don't know what it is to be in need. But God says, literally, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and understand their need, right? Because their need is going to produce in them the kingdom of God. So this is what he's talking about. Let there be joy and shouts of joy, singing for joy in the house of the Lord. Let them shout. Don't be quiet about it, but shout. And if you've been uncomfortable before in the house of God and just called it emotionalism, when people get excited and shout in the house of God, no, it's not emotionalism. They're obeying a commandment. They're obeying a commandment to actually shout for joy because they've got something to shout about. When you're at a sporting event, are you not cheering for your team? Hello, Bears fans. Come on, bear down, baby. It's sort of like, listen, when you are in a sporting event, or how many people have been in a concert recently, been to a concert before? How many people have lost themselves at a concert before and then hoping that it doesn't show up on Instagram, right? Sort of like, ah, and then you're like, oh, (laughs) you know, it's sort of like you lose yourself in these secular atmospheres, but when it comes to God, it's like, oh, I've got to be pious and holy. (laughs) And God's like, no, shout. Shout for joy to the Lord. Let them shout from the top of the mountains, not in a private place, but at the top of a mountain. That's a public place, right? That's a public place. You're not so concerned about who's to your right and who's to your left. You're shouting because you've got something worthy of shouting about. Continue on. He said, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out. Why are we shouting? Because the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. This is the Lord speaking now. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, however, I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. This is the gospel. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. This is good news, right? And he says, they turn back, though, and utterly, um, they are turned back and utterly put to shame, though, who put, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are my gods. 
Okay, so what he's talking about here is he's talking about the fact that worship is produced by the things that actually give us life, right? God is the author of life. When people are connected to God, they've got life flowing through their veins. All of a sudden, there's joy that comes back into their lives, right? There's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, against which things there is no law. And that's good news, right? Whenever you get to live in the spirit of God, you get to live in the freedom of God. It's that which the world thirsts for. It's that which which they hope for. But when we're disconnected from God, we live in the opposite spirit, right? We live in the works of the flesh. And in our culture around us, a lot of times, even for Christians who know God, what's happening is that the life of God is being choked out um, in them because of the culture that's being impressed upon them. And unless we go to God and learn how to worship him day by day. We don't have a song that comes out of us that gives us strength on a daily basis because we're grounded in who he is and what he's done for us. Now, this is what, what happens. What, even you look at the culture today, what's around us, people's convictions today, people's convictions today are more emotional than intellectual. How many people would agree with that? It's sort of like what tries to steal my joy is when I'm confused about who God is and what he's done for me. And the reason I'm confused is because my convictions become more emotional than intellectual. They become more, this other word that I use, populist rather than spiritual or submitted to God. You understand what I mean by that? You almost become embarrassed to rejoice in the salvation that you've been given by God. You almost become embarrassed about the gospel that has actually saved your life. But when Paul preached, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But when we're surrounded by a culture that rages against God, then you almost, as a Christian, though you want to love God, your song is stolen because you begin to be swept up and feel guilty rejoicing in something that the world is raging against. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So all of a sudden you have a culture that presses against the word of God, presses against the things of God, and you're trying to reconcile in your mind, how am I to live for God and be happy in him, rejoice in him when everything that surrounds me is opposed to him? And it can steal your song. It can steal your joy. But when you come back to the word, then all of a sudden you're able to understand, wait a minute, the goodness of God is my foundation. His rules and regulations are liberating and bring life and bring healing and bring hope rather than taking life from people. And it actually brings a song into my heart where I'm rejoicing for all that he's done in the midst of even if people stand against him. And this is what Isaiah was speaking to in the culture that he found himself. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. To be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. How many people have ever found that to be true? You see, you're going to have to see when I, when I got married, right? I had a choice that I was making, I had a choice that I was making. I was like, from this point forward, this woman and no more. How many people say amen? 
Okay, you better say amen. Okay, it's being no more, right? My wife being no more. And I had to choose her on a daily basis. Did it mean that there, I wasn't ever propositioned again? Did it mean that I didn't ever have opportunity again? No, but I had to choose her. I had to choose her. And you know what? When I went on my trips and people tried to offer things to me, I'm tell you, we live in the real world, right? Hello? We live in the real world. People tried to offer things to me. I could not be concerned about hurting another woman's feelings if I was choosing my wife. Hello? Hello? I'm happy to hurt any woman's feelings. You know what I mean? And say no <laughs> so that I can esteem and honor the one that I love. Yeah? And to be right with God often means to be in trouble with men. But to be right with God gives us the song that we need in holiness and purity to rejoice in who he is and what he's done for us. The attempt, though, to normalize sin in our culture can deaden our convictions in regards to God's character and the inner holiness that should be evoked in a life of worship to God. It can deaden it. Think about the, co- um, the commercials that you watch. Commercials that are, I mean, anybody ever try to watch YouTube videos and are tired of how many like pop-ups there are? It's like, just get me to what I actually looked up, right? But there are like three and four commercials coming before you actually get to what you want to see, right? And sometimes it's on repeat and it's trying to sensitize you or rather desensitize you desensitize you to things that are actually important to God. And if you're constantly feeding or living or drinking and biting upon those things rather than the truth of God, then your deadened senses become your standard. Rather than having God's word, the thing that you are grounded in and rejoicing in being the truth by which you live by. Is this making sense to you? You've got to be aware of what's going on around you and the culture around you. The images, rather, that we see are a part of this. Isaiah continued to talk in Isaiah chapter 5 when he, said to the, when he said this about being able to be thinking believers. Thinking believers. Not just drinking anything that wants to come your, feeding on anything that wants to come your way and agreeing with it just because popular culture does. He says, rather, woe to those. Woe to those. Meaning it will not go well for us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. He says it will not go well for us when we begin to, like the culture, exchange what God calls good and call what God calls good evil and call what um, God calls evil good. But it's happening all the time around us. It's happening all the time around us. And God's saying, hey, listen, if you want the song of salvation in your heart, you've got to be firmly established in who he is and what he's done for you. Otherwise, it comes to steal your joy. It comes to steal the very foundation off of which you should be building your lives. See, this is what happens before the song. 
you've got to get this straight in you. Is this making sense to you? Being aware of our culture is understanding that the images being presented strip us of our understanding of our salvation and thus the source of our joy. There was an article in The Atlantic. How many people have ever read The Atlantic before? Okay, The Atlantic. There was a good article talking about uh, imagery in our culture and the things that shape our convictions, the things that shape our convictions. And in this article in The Atlantic, it was talking about um, a Soviet filmmaker. And it said, about a century ago, the Soviet formalist filmmaker Lev Kuleshov conducted a series of experiments with filmic montage. In the most famous one, he edited a short film consisting of short, fil- um, short clips of various subjects, an actor's expressionless face, a bowl of soup, a woman on a couch, a girl in a coffin. The same clips edited into different sequences produced different interpretive results in the viewer. The deadpan face of the actor appeared to take on different emotions depending on which image preceded or followed it. He appeared dolorous, which means overcome with sorrow, for example, when seeming to look at the dead girl in the coffin. This effect of filmic editing has been called the Kuleshov effect. And Morgan, am I, am I saying this correctly? Is this right? Have you heard of this? Yeah, okay, so the Kuleshov effect, okay? The Kuleshov effect, and it's had an enormous influence on filmmakers, including Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and Francis Ford Coppola. It also forms the backbone of reality television. <laughs> Go figure, right? So that what you're seeing is not really what's actually happening. They're putting it together, but it's evoking all types of emotions, is it not? in which meaning is almost entirely produced in the editing room. Kuleshov's disciple, Sergei Einstein, would eventually call editing and montage in particular the key formal property of cinema. The famous Odessa Step sequence in his 1925 film Battleship Potemkin is a um, canonical example. These traits allow film to link together seemingly unrelated images, relying on the viewer's brain to make connections that aren't present in the source material, let alone the cinematic composition. Do you understand what he's saying here? Again, this will be in the notes, and you can go back and think about it and read it later. But what he's saying is they're producing emotions, they're producing reality by the way that they frame the images. Now, most people think that that's just the property of filmmakers, but how many people know that on Instagram we can do the same thing? On Twitter and all types of social media, we can do the same thing. And we can make the cultural norms louder than they actually are in reality. Right? Thinking everybody feels this way. This is all that's right. This is all that's good, as opposed to what God says. And then it becomes the social norm or consciousness that you feel guilty about not folding into. But God is saying, listen, don't make the social norms that are being constructed for you the foundation of your intellectual, spiritual, or emotional life. The song is going to come from being rooted and grounded in the truth of God And actually that song coming out of who he is and his life being breathed into you day by day. 
You got to be thinking Christians. Hello? Hello. That's what happens before the song. And we're living in a culture where backsliding is affirmed by the majority. Even if people started out in the church, it's affirmed by the majority. People start in the church and they get picked off and people are like, oh, yep, another one bites the dust, right? <laughs> right? And another one, right? Okay, listen. People treat it as, oh, that's just normal. And lukewarm living will not evoke a second glance. But what we need is for people to be born again. We don't need people to be religious. We need people to be born again. People who've been religious all their lives to come to the saving knowledge and grace of God and be transformed as a man or a woman from the inside out. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're often like uh, this image right here, you can feel like this in culture because you don't want to offend people. It's this picture of, uh, you might have recognized whenever you were a kid, how many people remember blowing dandelions? Okay, anybody have like, you know, still skip through fields and blow dandelions? Okay, no, so here's the thing, but that's how people can feel in their faith, right? Blowing dandelions. And it's because you don't want to offend those who are around you. But Rick Warren, who is a pastor in uh, Saddleback Church in uh, California, how many people have ever read his book, The Purpose Driven Life? Okay, have you ever read that or at least heard of it before? He actually said this, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you would disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both, however, are nonsense. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And whenever Jesus showed up on the scene, you know, he said the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, not just grace, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And our call in every generation is to be like Jesus. That is our destiny, to be conformed into the image of Christ. That is your call. And he said he came with both grace, but that foundation of that grace was his truth. And this is the foundation of our song. So, once we understand behind the song, then we get to Christ our song. And you sing ultimately about the things that make you come alive. Isn't that true? Anybody ever, like, you may not be a songwriter, but you try to sing anyway? Like me, okay, you have your private moments. Anybody, like, ever been heard in the shower called out before when you got out? And they're like, I heard you. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, okay? It's sort of like you sing about the things that make you come alive. And when you realize who Jesus is and the destruction that he saved us from on the cross, he becomes our joyous daily song of eternal salvation. Daily song. Listen, we're going to, over this course of the series, teach you about how to worship God and how to engage God, okay? We're just setting this up as an introduction, Okay? But the thing about it is, is that he becomes our daily song because it's like we actually have something to sing about. We're encouraged. We want to sing to him, right? And if you uh, don't have on your playlist a good set of worship music, let me implore, let me encourage you. That needs to be the bulk, <laughs> the bulk of what you're listening to because you, you ever realize how much you're listening to affects your moods, your attitudes, your perceptions in life? Anybody? 
It just because you're feeding on it all the time. And you're like, start singing stuff that you would never let out of yourself, out of your mouth in like some conscious conversation. But you sure are repeating it because you're just listening to it on repeat over and over again. But God's saying, let me, let me commend like one, uh, one uh, in, in piece of uh, worship to you. There is an old school man. He's old school now. He was a younger man when I became a Christian, but he's old school now because I'm old. Okay, so, so like there's an old school man called Fred Hammond. How many of you have heard of Fred Hammond before? Oh, okay, so Fred Hammond is still relevant. I hear that. Okay, so, okay, Fred Hammond, if you've not heard of him before, he, go on um, uh, iTunes and look up a song, one of my favorites. It says, Lord, you are my song. Anybody ever heard that one before? Woo! Is that anybody's favorite besides mine? Okay, I'll stand alone. So it's, Lord, you are my song. You are my song. And it's him understanding who God is and what God's done for him. And so literally Jesus becomes our song, the reason that we sing day by day because there's literally overflowing joy coming out of us because we know who he is and what he's done for us. How many people would prefer to live that way rather than just rolling out of bed in the morning and talking about, oh, God, has got a report to work today? How many people would actually like to live that way? Well, this is your inheritance in God when you're changed by him and rooted and grounded in who he is and what he's done for you. And what we see is that when we have a song like this, we can actually do what the psalmist did in Psalm 92. Turn to Psalm 92. This is where we're going to end today. We can understand that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's just good. It blesses him, most importantly, but how about this? It blesses our soul too. It gives, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. How many people know your attitude changes when you purposely give thanks rather than complaining about all that you're dealing with or surround, with surrounding you? It changes what's going on in your mental state. It changes what's going on in your soul when you're thankful rather than complaining all the time talking about what you don't have or what you haven't achieved. He said, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. When we get up in the morning, I have a reason to sing because regardless of what mistakes I made the day before, he says his mercies are new for me every morning. And I know that the steadfast love of the Lord is what greets me in the morning. Isn't that good news to anybody? Doesn't matter how often I've blown it, thank God he's good. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful because he can't deny himself. And so when I get up in the morning, I'm greeted by the steadfast love of the Lord. If I had a fight with my wife the night before, anybody ever been there before and did what the Bible said not to do, went to sleep angry, right? The Bible says, do not go to sleep on your anger. Fail. <laughs> okay. Talking about let's pin it. I'm like, let's pin, we'll take that pin out. You know, we're going to deal with something tonight, you know? But what I know is that after I go to sleep and get up in the morning, I'm greeted by the steadfast love of the Lord. And when I'm embedded in him, I'm greeted at the end of the day and have a song to sing because of his faithfulness to me at night. He kept me throughout the day and I didn't respond to people the way I wanted to. How many people can say amen to that? Ever, anybody that button's ever been pushed before in the workplace and you were like, I'm Christian, I'm Christian, I'm Christian. 
And that's all. They're like, why are you talking to yourself? I said, don't let me tell you why. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm praising him in the morning for his steadfast love, his faithfulness at night. To the music. Why do we play instruments? To the music of the lute and the harp. To the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. This is the invitation that God has for you. To come into his gladness. Gladness. God's got gladness as an inheritance for you. It does not matter your personality type. Hello? It doesn't matter if you're melancholy by nature. You don't have to be sanguine on the disc scale to be full of joy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever defined themselves more by a disc test than the Word of God? God's saying, this is who I'm making you to be. He said, you've made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So don't take part in what they do. He said, remember that. But you, O Lord are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn, which is a sign of his strength, like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil, which was a sign of anointing. Poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. And let me say this about enemies. He's not just talking about physical enemies here. He's also talking about the fact, the enemies that we face in the spiritual realm. Why? Because the Bible says we don't fight against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the spiritual feast forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Right? So even when we're appealing people to people, come over to the forgiveness and grace of God, it's not against a person, it's about the spirit that's at work in them. The spirit of disobedience, that's at work that they can repent of and be made new by Christ in. Good news, right? So he says, but you have exalted my horn. He said, my ears have heard of the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous, though, flourish. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. And if you're in Christ, you're righteous. Stop identifying yourself by your sin and identify yourself by Jesus who's loved you. Jesus who died for you. Jesus who was raised again to make you a new creation. He said that's where your righteousness comes from. Jesus and Jesus alone. He says the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And here's the kicker now. This is why, come on now, new generation, it used to be expected in our parents or our grandparents' generation, but this is why we come to church. This right here, this verse. I'm going to make it real plain. Let's read this together. They are planted. Planted. Uh, I said, let's read it together. <laughs> okay. They are, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. It's planting season, right? In Chicago, it's things are coming alive, but they only grow when they're planted in some healthy soil. If you have a pretty flower and you give it to your spouse, right? 
Guess how long it's going to last without some water? Day or two. But when it's planted, then it can thrive, and not only thrive, but reproduce. God wants you to flourish when you're planted in the house of the Lord. Planted, faithfulness, committed to the house of the Lord. And they still bear fruit. This one speaks to me. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So if I'm going to learn to worship him, I've got to worship him as he is. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, worshiping him as he is and not through the caricatures of who we want him to be or who the culture's made him to be. Worshiping him as he is. And in Songland, that they have this part of going into the studio because they're writing for a particular artist. The artist might have come out initially with their song, right? How they wanted to write. But then if they're writing for someone like Will I Am or you know I mean or like uh, John Legend or somebody like that, they've got to change the song to be appropriate to the one who's going to be singing it. And in the same way, we've got to give worship appropriate to the one who's receiving it. And that's what we're going to talk about. But it's actually being established in his righteousness that will keep us. Last, last little quote, understanding Christ is our righteousness and then we'll be done. Charles Spurgeon, you've heard us mention him often but he was a um, British preacher and he actually said this, that we can sing because you stand before God as if you were Christ. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And that is why we sing. We were condemned objects of his wrath before, but now we stand before God as if we were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were us and took the punishment, the wrath, and the shame that we deserve, but now we're free. And that's the reason why we sing. Amen? All right. So that is the reason, the story behind the song. And we'll start to go back into song now to worship him but let it come out of you because of who he is and what he's done for you. Amen? Amen. All right.